Connecting Coaches Cognition. Coaching with Courtney and Christensen. As a busy coach, you spend all day refueling, revamping, and reflecting with educators. Now is the time to stop and recharge your batteries with some much-needed coaching for the coach. Welcome back to another episode of C3. I'm Courtney Graskin, and I'm here with Violet Christensen. Violet, what's new in your world? What's new in my world? I um, have had an exciting week this week. Uh, my best friend just had her second baby. And so all week I've been feeling a little a little anxious and, and whirling around more than I usually do. And then I finally realized, I'm like, oh, it's because she's in labor. And so it's been amazing to just um, add more cousins to the crew and be able to celebrate that newness of a new fresh baby and also, um, in a small way, feeling very grateful to myself that I'm not in fresh baby stage, that we've made it to um, more of the school age clubs age and those things. So I'm getting to getting to jump into different chapters with my own children. They came home the other day so thrilled that schools are now having after school clubs again, and they're going to learn how to do messy painting for my youngest, which sounds pretty appropriately. And then for my older one, she wants to learn how to crochet. So it has just been fun watching all these new developments and thinking and reflecting in this, you know, start of a new year and just being able to see all these new chapters that are forming around me. Well, maybe when she learns to crochet, she can teach me because I keep being like, oh, I need a new winter hobby. And then I go to YouTube to watch videos of crocheting. And I'm like, no, my hands do not follow my, like, I can't do that. <laughs> oh, I think you can. She's learned a couple times from her Grammy, um, but I think it'll be fun to do it at school and with friends and maybe she can make pickles a sweater. Oh, she would love a sweater. <laughs> What's going on in your world, Courtney? I just can't believe the winter months are flying by. Um, the amount of snow we've had has been awesome, but I feel like really need to hone in on my self-care I'm making sure I'm taking time for me, trying to do lots of recreational reading on the weekends and just, you know, taking that deep breath during the day as things get a little busy. Absolutely. And in this, in this stretch until we get to a spring break time, you know, it's always one where you got to be mindful and be able to remind yourself to take care of you first. Definitely. Definitely focusing on that. Today we have Michelle Harris joining us. Michelle Harris is a senior consultant at the Instructional Coaching Group. She spent almost three decades as an educator, starting as a special educator, paraprofessional in Salt Lake City, Utah, before completing her master's in teaching at Pacific University and teaching middle school in El Cajon, California and Beaverton, Oregon. She served as an instructional coach for teachers and students in a comprehensive 68 middle school as well as a K-8 school. She has become an administrator in a 6 to 12 IB school and two comprehensive 68 middle schools. Michelle is a seasoned staff developer, certified in multiple trainer of the trainer programs. She has worked with Jim Knight since 2012 after participating in a coaching study with Jim through the University of Kansas. And she has facilitated workshops, coached and keynoted across the United States, Canada, Europe, Asia, and Africa. Recently, Michelle partnered with Jim Knight, Sharon Thomas, and Anna Hoffman to author the instructional playbook, The Missing Link for Translating Research into Practice and Evaluating Instructional Coaching, People, Programs, and Partnerships. Michelle, thank you so much for joining us today on C3. We are absolutely thrilled to have you here today. Thanks for having me, guys. I'm super excited. Well, we will jump right in with you. We can't learn, wait to learn more about you. Can you start by just telling us a little bit about your background in education and how you've gotten to where you are now? 
Sure. I I started actually my whole education journey being um, a para. And I was, um, and I actually started before that subbing. Um, I moved and did not have a job. And someone said, oh, you should sub. And so I did. And then um, through that experience became pretty um, familiar with one particular elementary school did the para thing for four years and decided that's this is what I want to do. So I went back to school, moved back to Oregon, where I'm from, went back to school, got my master's, and then moved to San Diego and taught two years at a middle school out in El Cajon, East County, San Diego, and then um, was getting married. And my husband is from Oregon, too. And we were looking at house prices in San Diego way back when in 1999 and said, we can't afford to live here. So we moved back to Oregon. Um, I got a job teaching middle school uh, in Beaverton School District and taught and became a coach and then became an administrator. So did all of those things, worked in Beaverton for 17 years. And um, then and I got to know Jim uh, Knight in all the coaching work I did. He came out and trained us and really um, just fell in love with his work and um, was doing a little part-time, few little part-time things. And then he kept saying, Michelle, come work for me. Michelle, come work for me. And I was like, yeah, but you don't have benefits and you, you don't have retirement. <laughs> so, uh, you know, all those things kind of come into play. And so uh, my husband and I had lots and lots and lots of conversations about it. And then I eventually just said, why not? Let's just do something different. So been working for Jim for about full-time for about five and a half years now. Um, completely love the work, do not love the being on a plane all the time, but love, love, love the work. Um, and so, yeah, so we're looking at, if I count those four years of, of being a parent, which I do, um, we're looking at, oh gosh, coming up on 30 years now of, of doing this work. So pretty much a lifetime. It's like uh, six degrees of separation with Kevin Bacon. It's now Jim Knight for the coaching world. I everyone has a connection to Jim Knight. Yeah, <laughs> isn't that funny? He will get a crack out of that if I tell him that. He will think that's hilarious. Well, you've worn every single hat, and so what a wonderful wealth of experience to bring to the table. But I do agree, everything all roads lead back to Jim somehow. Yeah, always, <laughs> always. So, can you tell us a little bit? Of, about your definition of what a coach is. Everyone brings their own perspective to the podcast and we just love to have this calibrating conversation of what your definition of coaching is. I, I thought a lot about this. I was reading the, the um, questions you all sent me and I, oh, it's really hard to put it into kind of an elevator speech, but I, I think my definition of a coach is a partner who opens up a psychologically safe space uh, with time for thinking, reflecting, problem solving, and ultimately turning all of that talk into action in the classroom. So change. And I think, I think, I mean, there's a lot more that goes into it than that, but I think that's a nice little package that kind of says most of what I would say about what makes uh, an effective instructional coach. 
it's so important that you start with that psychologically safe space. And I, I appreciate that portion of your definition. It's a new layer that we hear innuendos too, but I love that you call that out first in your definition. So powerful in order to be able to build in and have that type of progress, you have to have that safe space first. And Michelle, we know you are a wealth of knowledge. So we're going to jump right into some area of your expertise and into your, your, your field house, if you will. Can you tell us why having an evaluation system specific to coaches is so vital and also how we can ensure that we're building a sound system? I know Courtney and I have lived through various evaluation systems, as I'm sure you have with your many hats and being able to have one that's tailored to an instructional coach. Um, we want to know more about that. Can you share? Of course. Yeah. So I think one of the biggest reasons that we see coaching systems or coaches within a system um, not be effective is because of lack of role clarity. And part of that whole piece goes back to how you're evaluated. If you don't have clarity on what it is you do and how you do it and how it impacts people around you in the system, um, it's really hard to do uh, an effective job. And I don't know very many educators that don't want to be effective. In fact, I can't think of one. And so oftentimes what happens is we take a teacher evaluation and we try to mold it into a TOSA or a coach or someone who's not in the classroom full time. The problem with that is once you're out of the classroom full time, your job looks so different than it did. Even, even if you are an interventionist or someone that's pulling small groups of kids, that still looks very, very different. As a coach, your role is, is so incredibly different than it was in the classroom. It also helps to have an evaluation system that's 100% aligned to the idea of there has to be outcomes for coaching. It can't just be a, a series of nice conversations. <laughs> I always joke when I'm training people that my dream job would just be to have a never-ending Starbucks and just walk around all day long and be like, Courtney, how are you? How's it going? Do you want any, need anything? Want anything? No? You're good today? Okay. I'll see you tomorrow. Hey, Violet, how are you? You know, that would be my dream job. Like just walking around with this never ending coffee cup and just talking to people all day long. That's not coaching. Um, I wish somebody would pay me to do that, but nobody will. So that's not coaching. Um, so because it's not coaching and because there are so many elements of coaching that are a very specific skill set and you have to tie that skill set to outcomes an evaluation piece that's tied to all of that becomes just completely critical uh, for so many reasons. But I think the number one reason is uh, role clarity. Everybody knows what the coach does and that's what the coach is evaluated on too. Yeah, that's essential. And I feel, you know, the past few years, especially our coaching role has shifted so much in the level of support, the type of support we're providing um, that having that clarity is really essential to start off on the right foot. And our um, professional development coordinator is amazing at setting up those contracting conversations to start us out in new buildings to make sure, you know, we're aligned with the principal. But um, from year to year, I don't think I've done the same job twice. Um, right. Changing needs. Yeah. 
What types of data can coaches and their evaluators be gathering to help coaches know their impact and help them to improve their practice? Well, we differentiate the kinds of coaching that coaches do. We call some of it surface coaching and some of it deep coaching. And I think it's important to understand that it's not that one is good and one is bad. They are both highly uh, critical to the role. I think surface coaching often is building relationships and, you know, building street cred, like people knowing that you know what you're doing. Um, it's also a way to grow your own knowledge and your own uh, expertise as people come to you saying, hey, I need an article on this, or I've never, you know, I want to try Socratic seminar with fourth graders. Can you help me with that? Or, you know, my kids are, are talking, but they're not really using vocabulary or, you know, they're not agreeing to disagree in ways that are really respectful. And, and so you have to grow your own knowledge base too, um, because coaches can't know everything. And so some of the data that, that I say to collect is, is really around those surface coaching opportunities. Who's coming to you? What are they asking for? Because looking for patterns and all of that is really important for PD in your building, in your system. But the other thing that is really critical is you've got to collect your data on your deep coaching cycles, uh, you know, what we call an impact cycle. Where did you start? What was your goal that you set? What strategies or strategy or strategies did you use? And then what was your end goal? And how long did it take kids to meet that goal? And what were the tweaks and changes you made along the way? I had the... Uh, unfortunate experience of my fourth year of coaching um, when our board said, hey, we're spending all this money on coaches. Where's the proof that it's working? And so I, I had to present to the board that what we were doing was working. So of course, you know, I bust out my trifold science board, you know, that everybody uses. And I just had data just spread across it from, from all the coaching cycles. Um, that, that I went through that year with, with the teachers and with teams of teachers. And while I can't say that it necessarily worked to keep coaches in my system, I can say that it painted a really, really strong picture for what coaches are doing and the difference it is making for students. And so I tell coaches basically all around the world that you need to collect all of that data and have it in one place all the time all the conversations you're having, but also, you know, the real empirical stuff, like here's where the kids were when we started and here's where they were when we ended. And two months later, when I went back, she's still doing those things and kids are, it's still making a difference um, because anecdotal data is great. We can talk and we all know the importance of anecdotal data, you know, the affect of the classroom and the affect of the teacher are really critical, but you also have to have the empirical stuff. David, I hope you're listening because this is a feather in your cap. We have a full survey we do with KickUp um, that allows us to enter all of our coaching interactions. And we mm -hmm. often coach about what our log is showing within our coaching. So, um, you know, we've been really fortunate to have that system built for us. Uh, it is time consuming as a coach to enter, you know, all your interactions, but it does give really valuable feedback to know where you're spending your time and what that impact looks like. And how lucky are you guys to have a platform for that? Do you know, that's just not really common. We have so many coaches that just create spreadsheets on their own and do that on their own. So to have some sort of platform with pull down, drop down menus or whatever is great. 
And I feel like so many instructional coaches just struggle with that of how do they hold all of that data in a system that's tangible and quantifiable as well. And so I think it's powerful that you're speaking to being able to collect the data both in the light coaching and in the deep coaching because Mm -hmm. you need both sides, seeing those patterns in both the deep cycles and also in your day-to-day interactions can be really powerful for planning forward. Yeah, absolutely. You have to show the sustainability of coaching somehow within that data and the viability. Mm -hmm. Both those things have to come into play because that's what people who are not educators who sit on our boards and, you know, wherever else, you know, in the private system, that's where, that's what people want to know about. Is it sustainable? Is it viable? How are you, you know, so those things have to kind of be pulled out of that data collection piece somehow. Being able to show that impact in numbers is just the most powerful thing in order to help guarantee our positions moving forward, right? 100%. Like, how do I tell people all the time, draw a direct line between your everyday actions and whether the outcomes for kids are showing up. You you can't just walk around having a nice conversation with people. You have to show that it's working. And so however you can do that, then put it in, put it on paper or, you know, in a system. (laughs) Absolutely. Along that same vein, Michelle, tell us, you have such a wealth of coaching experience. You've gotten to work with some of the absolute best, which we've already name dropped here. Tell us what are some of your best recruitment strategies for finding the right instructional coaches? Oh, I think this is such a hard one. You guys, we talked so much about this when we were writing the evaluation book, because everyone has kind of a different idea about what makes a really good coach. And what I have noticed, and I noticed this when I was a coach as well, that oftentimes people that were really high quality, highly effective teachers get put into coaching positions. And I think that's good. I don't think that's a bad thing. I think that's a really good thing because highly effective teachers also know highly effective teaching strategies. They understand pedagogy. They understand, um, you know, what's developmentally appropriate and all those things are really important. And I'm not going to say, but, and um, there is a huge skill set that as a classroom teacher, you may also not possess. And so some of our interview questions, if you've read through that section of our evaluation book, we talk a lot about this concept of soft skills and people call them soft skills, but to me in coaching, they're absolutely critical. Um, You know, this idea that comes from Jim Collins, good to great from years and years ago of this mixture of humility, but also what he calls indomitable will, you know, like this idea of, I have to do what's best for kids, but also I'm a learner and I'm going to learn alongside my teachers that I coach. Um, And so, and, you know, Michael Fullen calls that a moral imperative, that every day my moral imperative is to move the needle for kids. If I, if that's in the back of any coach's mind, some of that other stuff you can teach them how to be a really good listener, how to be a, a really good questioner. How, um, I think one of the things when we recruit is we talk about this concept of um, judgmentalism because it's so easy to walk into a classroom and see all the things that we would have done differently. 
when if we were that teacher. And as a coach, you've got to put all that out, out, out of your head. You can't have all that stuff in your head. And people ask me all the time when I'm live coaching, like, did you have an idea what you wanted them to do? And I, no, <laughs> I didn't because it's not my classroom and they're not my kids. So that's another thing, um, you know, giving, giving the coaches that are interviewing, you know, when we're recruiting some scenarios and asking them to run through, how would you handle this? And you can tell a lot from the way somebody role plays something, whether, you know, whether they're guiding somebody, which is kind of like not what you want to do as a coach. So just some of those soft skills, I would say being a, being a learner is the number one thing I, I talk about a lot. Are, are you a learner? Are you willing to be humble enough to know that you don't know everything? But are you also willing to use what you do know uh, in dialogical ways? Um, are you a listener? Which sometimes those two things don't go hand in hand. Um, and then are you a leader? Are you willing to constantly be putting kids first and being willing to be inconvenienced for to put kids first. Um, so we talk a lot about how it's not just a typical interview. It, it has to be scenarios. It has to be some role playing of actual, how would you coach somebody on this? Um, and then once you recruit people, once you get people into that role, then you support the living daylights out of them. <laughs> because it's like all of a sudden you've gone from being on this team to like, uh, I'm alone. I'm all alone. And it is, I always say you have to mourn the loss of having a classroom your first year of being a coach. And if they don't, if the coaches don't have the support, if they don't have a confidant, somebody to really help them and walk them through, especially those first couple of years, you're not going to keep people in that role and you're going to lose really, really solid people, really good people. So recruitment is one thing. And then keeping people there through system support is another thing that has to happen. So you touched on it a bit uh, using system support to help retain coaches. What other strategies mm -hmm. do you have, um, especially in a time where we see a lot of people leaving education? Yeah. Yeah. I think right now more than ever, what we're seeing is the huge need for coaches in, in schools. Um, but that being said, that's um, heavy. You know, it's a weight um, that coaches bear because they feel in a lot of ways responsible for buoying people up, for holding people up, for being a sounding board, for being, um, you know, I, I hear all the time people saying to me, I'm not trained to be a counselor, Michelle. I don't know how to be a counselor. And I think that's a really valid um, worry. And a really valid concern because you're taking on uh, so many brand new teachers that are coming through alt cert, you know, pathways who don't have the background that most of us had going into teaching 20 or 30 years ago. You're you're having people who don't have, um, I don't know, that pedagogy that I think is just so incredible incredibly important to even like, I think about my husband, my husband doesn't work in education. He's a great person. He's super smart. He, he knows a lot, but he doesn't know anything about how kids learn. 
<laughs> and, and, and we have a lot of people who are coming in from the private sector who have a lot of deep knowledge about content, but they don't understand that they're, it's not adults that sit in front of them. And seventh graders act like that. And five-year-olds need potty breaks and snacks, you know? And so I think as a coach, you take on a lot of that. And right now coaches are taking on a ton of that. Um, and so to just constantly have somebody who's coaching the coaches, uh, we call it a learning architecture. Um, you know, coaches cannot just be on their own. I work with a couple systems where they have a, a coach who coaches the coaches <laughs> and they meet weekly. And they meet just to talk through things. And I think one of the reasons those systems have been so, uh, have been impacting kids and impacting teachers in such positive ways is because they have the support, the coaches have the support within the system, as opposed to like, all right, off you go, coach. I think another big one for retaining is truly helping administrators understand what coaching actually is. It's not fixing people and that they can't just, and it has to be an asset model. And I talk a lot about that. Um, it's not unlike sports. Everybody uses a coach. Everybody can always get better, even the best of the best. And there should not be a stigma in education to using a coach. Um, and often there is. And the reason there is, is because the people that are struggling the most are the ones that get handed over to the coaches. And it should be, it shouldn't be like that. It should be very much an asset based system. And I think in order to retain coaches, it has to be an asset based system. Just like when you have a classroom, you have kids that struggle and you have kids that don't. And isn't it a great little mix, you know, that we can put everybody together and we can all learn together. And, and you know what it's like if you have a whole class of super high achievers, that's just as hard as having a whole class of kids that are, you know, operating below grade level. It's, it's hard. And so if the coach only works with people that are struggling, you're, it, we're less likely to retain them. I just want to take everything you just said and amplify it and play it on repeat. I feel like it's like a bullet points of how to keep coaches and how to keep teachers as well and being able to make sure everyone feels supported. It, it somehow naturally comes up in almost every podcast that every coach needs a coach and every teacher needs a coach. And if we all feel supported, then we can all be more efficacious going into our individual roles and helping children to be successful. Oh, Michelle, you are just like the best. I just want to bottle you up here, but I want to see if we can steal one more good nugget from you. I told you I couldn't make it through a podcast without saying nugget. It's like a game now. Um, can you please just share with us? I love this question of um, share with us a moment of breakthrough in your coaching experience. One of those times that makes you be like, oh, this is why I'm a coach or oh, this is why I need a coach. Can you share one of those with us, please? Oh, gosh, there have just been so many. I, I can think back to, um, I was really lucky I got to participate in a two-year study um, with Jim and the people, the folks, the very, very brilliant folks at KU and their Center for Research on Learning there when I was a coach in Beaverton. Um, we committed to three years and the first year we had quite a few of us doing that and then no more coaches in my district. So there were four of us who were kind of still in like, I was, I, I changed schools. I went to a K-8 and became a 
halftime title one coordinator, halftime coach. And so I was able to continue in that study. Um, but I would say for me, and, and this was like my fifth and sixth year of being a full-time coach. So I wasn't, this wasn't my first year. I, I really thought I was killing it. I really thought I was hitting it out of the park until uh, one of the things we did in that study is we video recorded everything, every coaching conversation, every lesson, and we sent it all back to KU and they coded everything and did their thing. And then every four months or so, the four of us and then our two research assistants would fly out to Kansas. We'd sit in a room all day Friday, all day Saturday, half day Sunday, and just we we figured out the impact cycle in those two years. And um, but the very first meeting, very first one, Jim, all these smarty pants in the back of the room, right? All these like multiple PhDs, people that like, you know, present in front of Congress or whatever. And Jim said, okay, we're going to watch your coaching videos. And we were all like, what? And he said, oh yeah, we're going to put your coaching videos up and we're going to just talk about what we notice." And so, of course, I'm sitting there going, please don't let the first one be me. Please don't let the first one be me. Of course it's well, Yeah, of course. <laughs> of course. So Jim puts me up there. And this was my fifth year of coaching. And I'm watching myself. And I'm like, what is that? What am I doing? I was like shuffling papers. And my body wasn't even turned to her. Interrupted her numerous times did not let it, it you guys it was absolutely atrocious and as I watched myself um and everyone in the room of course was so kind and you know gracious but as I watched myself I was like okay whatever it is I'm doing that is not coaching um and I've got to figure that out and so one of the thing one of the many things I did I read Susan Scott's book uh, fierce conversations and one of the things she talks about in that book is to, um, she talks about the sweet purity of silence. Um, and I was like, that's what I need in my coaching. I need to respect the sweet purity of silence. And so I was like, okay, I'm going to do that. And the very next time, Sarah, this girl, woman that I was coaching and I sat down, I was like biting the sides of my mouth, like seriously. So I would not just jump in. And I just shut up and she went and she figured it out and it wasn't what I would have done, but that's okay. Cause it wasn't my classroom. And that for me was like, okay. So my mantra that I repeat in my head when I'm coaching is respect the sweet purity of silence. Um, because it's not about me. It's never about me. It's about them. And um, so that has been for me the biggest thing, like just shut up and listen for what people are saying so you can repeat it back to them and look for the places where their body language changes. That's a big one for me too. When they start talking about something and they become more animated or they sit up, I'm like, there it is. That's that's the thing right there. So that me not talking and paying attention has been the thing that I work on every single time I coach. Thank you for sharing that story and highlighting the value of being able to reflect on your practice through video. 
And then that power of the pause of as a coach, that nuance of stepping back and letting the educator do all the heavy lifting and being prepared to paraphrase and listen. And it's so great to be that model of videoing yourself. We ask instructors to do that all the time to be able to analyze their game and for us to be able to do the exact same as a coach and be able to analyze with our teammates and have those noticing conversations are just some of the most remarkable ways in order to progress your uh, your own coaching forward. So I'm so glad that you got to share that. Uh, Michelle, you can just see the light coming out of you as you're speaking about these things. It's just, it's amazing. And now we're going to shift just slightly um, as we're okay. watching for those beamers and that body language of shifting just slightly into our rapid fire questions. Um, tell okay. us all your handles. We want to know, Michelle, so everyone can follow you. Everyone can get your book. So it's your time to shine. Tell us where we can learn from and with you and where we can follow you and what you have coming down the pike. Um, okay, so the best two places are probably LinkedIn. It's Michelle Rogers Harris. My maiden name was Rogers. Um, two L's in the in the um, Michelle or um, Twitter. It's at Harris Mr One is my handle on Twitter. Those are probably the two best places. Um, as far as what's coming down the pike, I've been trying to talk Jim into a rewrite of Impact Cycle. But <laughs> Ooh, oh my goodness. But I don't think he's up for that. But he tells me all the time, Michelle, if you want to do that, you can do it. I'm not sure I'm up for it, my soloing that. So I don't know book wise. Um, I think we're taking a little bit of, of a break on the next co-authored book because he's still he's still he's in the midst of, of finishing one with another co-author that he's been working on for close to 10 years now that just needs to get done. Um, but, you know, our big annual conference every year is a huge, huge deal. TLC, our teaching, learning, coaching conference. This year it's in Orlando. So if you want someplace warm, um, yeah, we're going to be in Orlando. It'll be in October of 2023. That's always probably one of the best ways to get all things coaching. Um, unless somebody else's somebody else has an emergency, I will not be delivering another keynote. I was the emergency keynote deliverer. Oh my. And then, and then my colleague's mom got gravely ill and she had to leave at the last minute. And my, my other colleague goes, Michelle, didn't you say you'd deliver a keynote if somebody couldn't do it? And I was like, dang it. I did say that. So no, that will not be happening. Um, <laughs> I am not, I am not volunteering for that. Um, but besides that, um, that's kind of it. I, I'm just, there's a lot of field work that I'm doing, a lot of both international and um, stateside field work. And so I am very, very, very busy until June. Fantastic. Well, we also want to hear from you. What is your tagline or your bumper sticker for coaching? It's not about me. Short and sweet. <laughs> I love it. I love it. <laughs> Oh, Michelle. And last but not least, what is your secret coaching superpower or your go-to move? My go-to move is what I call finding the stuff in the cracks. And it sounds really gross and weird, but it's not. I promise you. My go-to move is kind of what I mentioned before, noticing how people light up, how their body language changes when they repeat themselves and say the same thing over and over and over again, or the same thing, just using different words. That's what I like to pull out and highlight. And once you do that, once you highlight it for them and say, you told me this, is that what you want to work on? You see a change come over them. You see a change on their face, in their body. My go-to move is just 
kind of listening for the stuff that's, you know, in, in, in the cracks that people sometimes don't even know that that's what they want to work on. But boy, when you pull it out, they know it's, it's very obvious. Um, and you have to really listen hard with like every fiber of your being in order to, to get to that. Hearing what they may or may not be saying in that moment, right? Yeah. And what, you know, I think a lot of times people get a little nervous. Like, you know, we have our set questions that we ask and the way we ask them and people get a little stressed out. But I think for me, the biggest learning for me is just to help them feel comfortable. And then I just keep telling them what they've already told me. And so, cause of what I want them to do is walk away from that conversation feeling like, Oh, she really heard me. And she really pulled out what I was thinking, but couldn't exactly say. So that, you know, that's kind of what my hope is always. Thank you so much. You brought so many wonderful things to light today in our conversation. And it was so nice to have you. Thanks, you guys. That was like the easiest thing I've ever done. Oh, we love, love hearing it. that. <laughs> no, thank you so much. Michelle shared wealth of coaching knowledge and insight with us today. Which practice do you want to bring forward? How might you elevate your coaching practice? Be sure to follow us on Twitter at C3Coaches or on Instagram. Thanks for listening. C3, connecting, coaches, cognition. Whose thinking will you mediate today?